There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. I'm looking forward to our conversation with today's guest, Katie Hafner. Katie was on staff at the New York Times for 10 years, where she covered technology. She remains a frequent Times contributor, writing about healthcare as well as obituaries. Katie is a versatile writer with an extraordinary inquisitiveness. That fact is born out of her six previous nonfiction books, which cover such diverse topics as the origins of the internet, the tensions of post-war Germany, the reunification of East and West Germany, and the life of Canadian classical pianist, Glenn Gould. Katie is also the creator and host of two podcasts, Lost Women of Science and Our Mothers, Ourselves. Katie Hafner, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. No, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. So let's start by playing the brief trailer for season two of Lost Women in Science. Can we cue that up, please? Do I know who Clara Van Neumann is? I'm embarrassed to say I've never heard of her. Wasn't she, did she have something to do with the weather? I've heard of John von Neumann. I'm not even sure how to pronounce her name. Was she related to Newman on Seinfeld? I'm Katie Hafner, host of Lost Women of Science, where we explore the work and lives of overlooked female scientists. What Claire von Neumann is doing is helping to define what is possible on this new kind of machine. She ultimately became a kind of super programmer. Their stories are often untold, their contributions unacknowledged. Clary's role was sort of hidden because she had worked on the very secret bomb calculations. Women got to be programmers and got to make such a huge impact on the history of programming because that job was not seen as being important. In 1947, it was Clara and her code that helped make nuclear weapons simulations possible. Programming was this completely new discipline, so really everybody was starting on the ground floor, as it were. She always said she liked it because she liked puzzles, and this was a kind of puzzle. I mean, she's like at Los Alamos as someone with absolutely no training in physics or mathematics, talking one-on-one with Nobel Prize winners. And she was working with a brand new technology deep inside a world forever changed by the atomic bomb. There's this connection between death and computing that is inextricable. Join us as we seek to understand the origins of modern computing through one extraordinary woman's story. She was sort of there at the moment of creation. If you look at this as a sort of cradle in a manger sort of thing, she, she was holding the cradle. Season two of Lost Women of Science, coming March 31st. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Katie, I came across that in an article I received from Scientific American Magazine a couple of months ago, and, and I do some work for female veterans in STEM and thought this was a fascinating idea. Mm. You know, so I reached out, and so, I, again, thanks for coming on. Why did you start the Lost Women of Science podcast? And is it a solo effort, or do you have help? 
Yeah, no, we, oh, such a good question. So, and also I just have to say hearing the trailer like live, it just, it just went up. Um, it really gave me chills because we have such a great production team uh, and the story itself is so amazing, but we'll get to that later. Um, so Lost Women of Science. Um, so I've been a reporter forever um, and uh, I have a friend named Amy Scharf who uh, has been telling me for years about this one woman named Dorothy Anderson, who was the first to isolate and, uh, and name cystic fibrosis back in 1938. And Amy for years has been saying, oh gosh, someone needs to, cause she's been completely forgotten. Um, and, uh, and Amy's the close friend of the daughter of the mentee of this woman, Dorothy Anderson. And Amy said, somebody needs to tell her story. And then like, I guess about two years ago, I said to her, well, let's do a podcast about Dorothy Anderson. What a great idea, because I'd been doing Our Mothers Ourselves, and I love doing, I love working with audio, and I thought, you know, that Dorothy's story isn't quite a book, plus who reads books anymore? So um, she said, great idea, and then I said, wait a minute, I'm sure that there must be thousands of Dorothy Andersons out there, women who made huge scientific contributions, but for one reason or another, their story has been lost or they've gone uncredited. So I said, let's do an entire podcast series and call it Lost Women of Science. And Amy's like, okay. (laughs) And little did we know that we were getting on this train that was leaving the station. And we are now, um, so we've got the Dorothy Anderson season behind us. We have a we are a, a nonprofit, so we're a 501c3, and we call and we are incorporated as the Lost Women of Science Initiative. So we are more than just the podcast, um, because we're an educational nonprofit. So our goal, our overarching goal, is not just to rescue these women from oblivion, but to um, encourage and inspire uh, girls and young women to pursue careers in STEM. And since you started that podcast, again, Lost Women of Science, what has been the most interesting or inspiring story? And what is it about that particular story that really speaks to you? Well, you know, we're only in our second season, so I can choose between two. And I and they've both been inspiring in their own way. So there's Dorothy Anderson, who was a medic who went to medical school in the 1920s, and she was one of four women who graduated with a medical degree from Johns Hopkins in 1926. Um, And she was shut out of surgery because that's not something women did. And she became a pathologist because that's kind of a behind the scenes. You know, I didn't even know that back then, a hundred years ago, patients didn't want female doctors. And now today, uh, my daughter's just getting her MD in a couple months. And um, congratulations. Thank, thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> I take full credit. Absolutely. I totally would. <laughs> She'd kill me. I hope she's not hearing this. Um, <laughs> and then 
is now 50, more than 50% of medical students across the U.S. are women, which is a great, great triumph. Um, and then, but I have to say that our second season on, on Clara Don von Neumann, who was the second wife of the famous um, mathematician and computer scientist, John von Neumann, it just... It has, Chris, that season has just stolen my heart. It is, it's an amazing story. And um, it's got everything. It's got romance, multiple marriages, fleeing the Nazis, um, Los Alamos, the atomic bomb, then the H-bomb, the very birth of modern day electronic computing, and computer coding, plus we're saving this woman from absolute obscurity. And um, and so I I just, I love her story. So I asked you which one was your favorite, and you said there were only two to choose from. This is your second <laughs> oh, season. Oh, but I forgot. We have this, thank you for reminding me, we have this growing database of about 200 and counting uh, women who we... Um, who really deserve our attention. So our idea, and I hope that people listening to this, what we want to do also is crowdsource this. So if anyone you know, and I'm saying all of you, everybody out there, and if you know of anyone whose story hasn't been told, who did something great or even pretty great in, uh, in science, let us please let us know or go to lostwomenofscience.org and um, click on that contact us button. So is the goal to have 200 seasons if you've got a database of 200? Yeah, I know. How old will we be by then? <laughs> but actually, it's interesting because, you know, it's kind of a continuum. There's, you know, it's a one to 10 scale. So no, number one would be like women who are so lost there's no way to tell their story in a season. There's no way to even tell their story in 60 minutes. And then there are the the then there are the you know Hedy Lamars and Rosalind Franklins and Ada Lovelaces and Marie Curies. Those are at 10. So our sweet spot is kind of four, five, six for for a season. But then what do you do about the women over here? who still deserve attention. So my idea is to do like a 30 minute um, interstitial, you know, between seasons, um, a 30 minute quick take on as many as we can. We just need it. more money. We need more funding. So. And what's the website again? Perfect segue right, right there. Exactly. Perfect segue. Donate. <laughs> Lostwomenofscience.org. We do have funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, as well as Schmidt Futures, Eric and Wendy Schmidt, and um, as well as the John Templeton Foundation. All of them are wonderful. And that's going to see us through season four. That's terrific. So, yeah. That's great. So you touched on a few things that Clara was involved in. What were her contributions to science and what part did her personal relationships play in helping or hindering her career and success? Wow. That's a great question. So <clears throat> she was, um, you know, she, her life was driven by chance and you know, that's the sliding doors effect, you know, where, oh, uh, 
if I hadn't missed the train, that would have happened in my life would have taken this whole other course. I'm sure you do you ever step back and think of your life that way? It's like, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Or fortunately. Yeah. Usually fortunately, actually, usually fortunately. <laughs> fortunately. Fair point. Fair point. I know. So, so she, uh, she loved being in love uh, as a very, she came from a very wealthy family in Budapest fell in love when she was in her teens, married this guy. He was a compulsive gambler, gambled all their money away, um, or he, not all their money away, but because she, her dad was very well off, but her dad ended up basically paying for her to just get rid of the guy. And then she marries another guy who's kind of really wonderful and stable, but super boring. And she's very, very, very smart. And, but back then women didn't go and get PhDs in science. Um, so she basically had a high school education, which is interesting. And then she, she must've been so charismatic and just radiated life. And um, she then fell in love with and married John von Neumann, who was almost as famous in his day as Albert Einstein. He was kind of, back then it's hard to imagine, but he was like a minor celebrity. He was like the Brad Pitt of, you know, science. <laughs> and, and, they uh, and she moved to Princeton to be with him while the, Hitler was just about to invade Poland. She gets out there at Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study, which is this kind of place for geniuses um, like Einstein was there. And um, and then by total chance. Um, she ends up learning how to code this brand new computer, this newfangled thing. And after the war go goes to Los Alamos to work on something called Monte Carlo simulations, which is a way of simulating, it's simulating um, what you can't really play out. Model, yep. A model, thank you, in real life. So um, they were doing fission and then fusion um, simulate then um, so for the atomic bomb and then for the H bomb and she it's amazing they have these you know they do it with flow charts and with these mathematical kind of like just all these numbers and it's um, and we got really really lucky because we found a computer historian who preserved who found this stuff in the Library of Congress preserved it and got and hired a handwriting analyst. And he, I know, and he figured out that that was Clary's handwriting. So she actually did the, um, the computations. So, um, and the coding. It's and fun watching you talk about it because your eyes just light up. You know, I know people are listening, but for the viewers, I mean, it's just, you just get so excited about talking about her and the work well, she's done. It's just fantastic. I love it. I know. Just imagine, you know, like they, it's like she, she didn't even have the tool. They didn't, she, they were creating the tools. So I'm trying to think what a modern day equivalent would be where we have to create our own tools. I don't even know. And we don't have to think about it because she did it for us. Yeah. I know. In fact, that is the foundation of modern day computing of actual coding is what she 
and others did. I mean, no, you know, that's the other thing about scientific discoveries is that nobody does this stuff in a vacuum, you know? And so one thing we try to do with Lost Women of Science is debunk what we call the great man theory of history, where it's like one, usually man, did something. You know, science is done collaboratively. Bringing things back to the show's team of prevailing through adversity and achieving personal empowerment, what do you think we can apply from her life that can make us more resilient and successful? That's such a good question. I mean, um, I guess uh, um, I think she just managed to plow ahead even when terrible things happened, as did Dorothy Anderson. Um, Dorothy Anderson, so our first season, she was orphaned when she was very young. And um, so she had absolutely, she had no siblings, no aunts and uncles that I could find. Um, so what do you do when you're left with that? You pick up the pieces. So Clary, had, Clary von Neumann had grown up in this unbelievable um, affluence and then her father, who was a big industrialist in Hungary, um, they had to flee the Nazis and he couldn't go on. So he ended up um, throwing himself in front of a train in right before um, uh, around Christmas, I think, of um, 1939. So right after he got to the United States. I think he was too, too uh, the only word I can think of is tired. Be he had left everything behind. You would think about it, you build this life. He must have been in his 50s, 40s or 50s, and he just didn't want to start over. I think that was, that actually happened. I don't know if it was common, but it happened um, that people who had to leave a life behind just didn't have the, they just didn't have it in them to start over. And I'm so kind of um, admiring of those who do, you know, think about it. You and, and I'm thinking now about, you know, everybody fleeing Ukraine, like how, what are they? And you look at the photos like and what they're taking. I mean, I think about what these families back then, you know, history is repeating itself. What these families back then who had to during at the start of World War II get out if they were lucky enough right. to get out. And what did they take with them? People sewing money into their clothes. That isn't what the what Clary's family had to do because they had the privilege to um, to get the documents they needed and to come over. But, you know, it's all relative. So Clary, she loses her precious father. She's in this new place. She feels insecure, but she managed to fashion a life for herself with this new with this husband, this genius husband. And then just as things are really starting to kind of bubble along, he gets sick and dies. So then what does she do? I'm not going to tell you because I want everyone to listen to the podcast. Dramatic pause. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> 
So women scientists, and it's not something limited to just their profession, often encounter something called the Matilda effect. What is the Matilda effect and when did it begin to be recognized for what it is? So the Matilda effect is named after um, a pretty well-known suffragist um, at the um, back in the 19, uh, I'm sorry, the 1800s actually, um, who uh, named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And uh, she actually wrote a pamphlet, which is kind of odd, um, called Woman as Inventor. Um, and fast forward to the 1960s, and a, a science historian named Margaret Rossiter, um, who's devoting her life to um, writing about female scientists uh, through history, uh, notices this phenomenon where a woman did something and a man takes credit. And she had to give it a name, this phenomenon. And she decided, because she knew about Matilda um, Gage, she decided to call it the Matilda effect. So basically, it's where something gets done. The, one of the most famous examples is um, uh, Rosalind Franklin, <clears throat> who, along with Watson and Crick, um, came to this understanding of the structure of DNA, and it was her X-ray crystallography that led to their um, to their discovery. But she got completely cut out of it. They got the Nobel Prize. She had already died. So there's this question, since the Nobel Prize is not awarded posthumously, so that couldn't have happened. But she wasn't, she truly was not given the credit until people years later um, decided to, to write that wrong, but that's a classic Matilda effect example. And um, so we found that in season one, that that was the case with Dorothy Anderson. And um, it pissed us off. <laughs> Rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> so we hope we, uh, we hope we nipped that one in the bud. <laughs> to that point, I'm curious to find out how you found the women whose contributions to science were claimed by men, especially when many occurred so long ago. Can you elaborate on the detective work and the stories? Yeah, they, total clues detective. In plain sight? Total detective work and not in plain sight, uh, many of them. So uh, this one, which we, we, we figured out, actually, we're not even the ones who figured it out. It was our guy, um, this amazing... He's a pulmonary, um, a pediatric pulmonologist at Columbia University. So, I mean, pediatricians who work with very sick kids are already heroes in my book. And um, and his name is Scott Baird, and he became obsessed with Dorothy Anderson. And he then went on to write a biography of her. And he's the one who figured it out by kind of superimposing the timeline of what happened when with the, the the time that certain papers were published and he figured out that she had made this link i don't know how much you know about cystic fibrosis but there's this link between sweat and the and salt um and cystic fibrosis and she 
made that essential link. And um, so Scott was looking at how this other person uh, came to be associated with that and not Dorothy because, and she didn't, she never, you know, she wasn't a toot her own horn kind of gal. That was not her thing. And so she really liked staying in the background, but it's still not okay in my book. I don't know what you think. No, of but, course. I absolutely yeah. agree. Right. How prevalent is the Matilda effect today? And what is it going to take to eliminate it, if at all, if we can? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, you know, I think it's probably much less, I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm going to say because women are making advances in science and um, that it's less prevalent, it's also it's it's also known to be not okay, and there are more there are more uh, kind of monitors and checks and balances on the whole scientific process than there used to be. Um, so I'm sanguine about how things are going, uh, but I think that as we go forward with Lost Women of Science, we're going to find it. Um, more and more, but only if we can document it. We can't speculate. It's not our business to speculate. Um, we're very careful about speculating in this podcast. Well, you talk about documenting. You've mentioned that for centuries, women have been omitted from the pages of history. Is that simply because there just weren't as many women writers in the past as there are today? You mean women... Um, Scientists? Yes. Uh, I disagree. I don't think so. I mean, I did think so, <laughs> but now that uh, I have, so I, I hope I can squeeze this in before the break. Uh, You've got time. Really briefly, if I can do this, um, I in in uh, in investigating season two about Clara von Neumann. Um, one of my producers and I went to um, the UCSD archives. It was actually our senior editor, uh, Nora Matheson, and we were sitting in the archives special collections room and we were looking through the files. You know how archives are organized in big boxes and then file folders. And we were just going along looking at this other person, a man named, a physicist named Carl Eckhart, who was Clary's fourth husband. Um, I know, but who's counting, right? And <laughs> and um, I just see this folder and it's folder number 29 of box number five. And it's this woman, Christine Essenberg. And she was a zoologist specializing in plankton. And, and nobody knows about her. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is, and this, oh, I'm sorry. And this was from 1917 and she was just thrown in there. And I thought, you know, this cannot be, this is an N of one, but also it, this has to be true at, in archives across the nation. Is it fun when you uncover something like that that you weren't expecting to look for or to find? It it's in it's fun, but it's infuriating. I mean, I really actually felt a little nauseated thinking that she, if I hadn't just stumbled on folder twenty nine in box five at UCSD, nobody would know anything about her. 
And again, where can people support the organization? Lostwomenofscience.org. Thank you for asking. <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking to Kitty Hafner, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back with Katie Hafner former Newsweek and Businessweek contributor and writer for the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Wired, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and O, The Oprah Magazine. We've been talking about the podcast that she created and hosts titled Lost Women of Science. Katie, what have you learned about yourself as you work on each podcast episode? Well, one thing, um, so my editor at the New York Times, this marvelous, uh, one of the editors I, I had over the years, this amazing um, journalist named um, Glenn Cremon. I don't know, there was something kind of infectious about his curiosity. If you have a conversation with Glenn, he um he asks you some, you know how a lot of people love to talk about themselves. He will just ask you question after question after question. And he's always been sort of my role model for inquisitiveness. And so I saw him over the summer and I sort of like did a little bow. And I said, I want to thank you so much for the training that you gave me over the years. And he was, you know, he wasn't consistently my editor, just sort of spottily over the years, but he just gave me this love of, you know, figuring stuff out and always looking around the next corner. And uh, so I found 
in doing the Lost Women of Science podcast that everything I have been building up to as a reporter has led to this um, area of deep inquiry and uh, what while hewing to facts, um, we go through a really rigorous fact checking process at uh, Lost Women of Science. It takes us weeks to um, fact check the smallest things, you know, from the age someone was when something happened to um, some fundamental fact about Los Alamos. Um, to, you know, making sure that we have everything technically absolutely accurate. Um, in the first season, it was the pathophysiology of cystic fibrosis, which is a very complex disease that involves a lot of different organs in the body. And, um, and in this season, it was... Um, it was the the true evolution of the ENIAC, this first one of the first modern day computers, um, as well as who did what, as well as what they did, as well as fission, explaining to an audience how fission works versus fusion. So there were a lot of moving pieces with this one. I have to tell our audience that you and I spoke last week and I was bowled over by your enthusiasm. Your eyes just lit up and you became very, very expressive and animated when you're talking about your next book. Where did your love of storytelling come from? My next book. Okay, I can't wait to talk about that. Um, I just, I, maybe it was my dad who read to us unlikely stories uh, when we were little. When my sister and I were little, he would read, for instance, Kafka, who became a lifelong love of mine, Franz Kafka. He read my father when I was eight years old, read The Metamorphosis to us, which seems like odd. And then he read this one story about a ferret named Shredni Vashtar. I'll never forget that. And then he would read Alfred Hitchcock mystery stories. So um, he thought that no child was too young to um, absorb a good story. So how did you nurture that to make the amazing career that you've had? I, you know, I don't know. I, I went to UCSD. That's where I studied. And I studied German literature. And I just remember walking in one day to the um, the office of the, um, the UCSD uh, newspaper, and my pulse quickened a little bit. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what I want to do. I wanted to change the world, but that didn't happen. But, you know, every little bit that you do as a journalist, I think if you're a good journalist and not a kind of, you know, bad one, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally agree. We have such a bad rap. I'm trying to think of how to, you know, warm people up to what we do. I mean, I just, I feel very strongly that um, if you report accurately, um, then you can make a difference. You're saying the media isn't always accurate or giving accurate information? I am. I am. Yeah. That's a different, different podcast, different day, different topic. It's just become so polarized. It's, Unfortunately, uh, yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Unfortunately. I know. So one of the times where you were most animated was when you were talking about your latest book, as I mentioned, and first novel, which will be released this summer. Give us a preview of The Boys and why you're so excited about it. 
Yeah, my uh, editor really is trying to get me to refine my elevator my elevator pitch. So this is practice with us. So if you're going, if you're in an elevator, and let's go say you're going to a high floor, so we've got a little bit of time. Um, uh, So the boys is my first novel. Um, I've written six books of nonfiction, so this is my first book of fiction. And it came, this came to me um, thanks to my daughter. My daughter and I were on a bike trip in 2017 um, and something happened one night at dinner. Somebody said something that was sort of surprising. And, And my daughter turned to me and she said, mom, that's a novel. That story is a whole book. Like, and I said, you're right. And so knowing just that tiny little germ, that little seed of information, I wrote it. It took me a few years. You know, you'd think that, hey, you're just making stuff up. How long could it take? It's a very <laughs> different, I know, it's a very different discipline. So um, I loved, I actually loved making stuff up. I loved letting my imagination fly, but I keep it grounded in reality. So it's kind of a, I'm fusing my journalistic skill with my fiction writing skill. And the story is of a man um, a lovely, endearing, so slightly socially awkward man who um, has been living a pretty lonely existence, falls in love with a wonderful woman. Uh, they get married. Um, and he's a little, he's resistant to having kids. He then is on board with having kids and they end up adopting these two kids who are Russian and he grows and then the pandemic comes and they're all caught inside and he grows obsessed with the kids and they're speaking Russian and they're watching the TV so the kids can learn English and he's completely obsessed with the kids and she leaves him. And then that's the first half of the book. And he's of course heartbroken. And the second half of the book, you get a completely different perspective on him and on the kids. And that's, um, and that's the story. It's a very, I really wanted to write a book peopled with good people, people who are good to their core, because we have enough, you know, bad actors out there in real life, right? Yeah, exactly. So, So how do you end up writing about the topics you've written about and write about for so many top publications? Do you get to choose the topic yourself? Do they just tell you what they want? How's that work? So I have found, I was just a guest speaker at a a class at NYU, a feature writing class. And I said that I have found, and I think this is real words, um, words of wisdom, is that the, the stories I write best are the ones where the ideas come from me because I am intrinsically and clearly excited about the idea. When I get assigned a story, it tends to be less exciting to me um, just because I have to get my mind around it. And, And if I have to get my mind around the idea, then I tend to do a less impassioned job with it um, because I'm not entirely convinced. Sometimes people come to me with story ideas that are just great, but usually the ideas come from from me. And I write, um, these days, I do book reviews for the Washington Post. Um, 
on a regular basis. And I do uh, obituaries and advance obituaries for the New York Times. That's my journalistic life these days um, in print. And then um, then there's the, uh, the podcast. So great segue. You've been a writer for so many years and had so such many great years. success. So many <laughs> Why did you choose the podcast medium instead of the print or visual mediums to tell the story of women's contributions to science? So as I said earlier, I think books are tough. I think it's a tough audience these days with books. I think it's hard to get people to sit still for a full biography. Also, because it's women whose lives have not been well documented, I think documenting um, a life enough to sustain an entire book could be tough. Um, and I love uh, I love audio. I've always loved audio. I've always loved sound. And so I could just see these things, these stories lending themselves to sound. Um, and also people are growing much more accustomed to hearing stories in their ears. And, uh, and I love music. So I, we have a musician, by the way, we have a composer who works for us. Um, I mean, she has her own life. She, we contract with her. Um, she's, she's actually, um, a graduate of um, the Curtis Institute, um, the Curtis Conservatory in um, Philadelphia. And what I did when I was looking for a composer is I wrote to every single music conservatory I could think of in the country. And I said, you know, we're looking for a composer for our podcast because I wanted those who had studied composition. And I wrote to a woman, I thought, okay, smart to write to a woman about a, a podcast about women. And music is another area, Chris, where men, you think of male composers, right? How many female composers can you actually think of through history? So um, I know, don't get me started on Lost Women of Music. So <laughs> this woman who actually won a Pulitzer, a composer named Jennifer Higdon at Curtis, at the Curtis Institute, she wrote to me and she said, I have the perfect, um, the perfect uh, composer for you, a young woman named Elizabeth Yunin, who lives in Australia. So it's all very virtual with her. And she writes... So you heard the music in the trailer. That's Lizzie's music. She gives she gives us a, maybe 15 to 20 pieces per season to work with. And it's so much fun. I think the most fun is doing the score when we score each episode and we choose the music. Three of us sit down, me and our producer, Sophie McNulty, and our associate producer Ashreya Gupta we sit there and pick the music and it's like we're, we sit there and think oh my gosh this is our job <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned earlier that I admire your enthusiasm for the subjects you research and write about how can the rest of us ignite more intense curiosity in ourselves and how to improve our lives and relationships if we did oh gosh I love that question it's like look around I mean we as I said earlier, we tend to love to talk about ourselves and, you know, I'm no exception, but I always make sure I ask, like when you, the next person you meet, get their story. They're, everybody has a story. 
and uh, and it's fun. It's like you because you learn not just about their story, but let's say they're from Nebraska. You learn something about Nebraska, something about the rest of the country. Um, I think that's absolutely key to a fulfilling life is opening your eyes to the to the world around you and letting it in. And that's a great point, a great way to look. But, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic, people are now just sort of getting re-engaged with society. I know. It's tough. I understand. It's very tough. Uh, I mean, I have my character, my my main character in the novel goes to the grocery store and has an absolute panic attack during, you know, because someone's breathing all over the bok choy without a, without a mask on and he freaks out. Um, and he goes, he abandons his grocery cart and leaves and goes home. And his wife says, where are the groceries? And he says, I just couldn't do it. And I get that. Um, however, uh, baby steps. Exactly. You know, exactly. We, I coach my sons or help coach my son's little league baseball team. And we have had practice over the weekend and I'm tossing some balls. And one of the dads who was helping me coach came over and was putting, you know, giving me some of the balls he's picking up in the field but he wouldn't actually, he would drop them into my hand as opposed yeah. to sort of like place them and accidentally touch, which is what we did two years ago. So like you said, very slowly, we'll get re-engaged. We'll, we'll figure out what the new norm is, hopefully, uh, but we'll figure it out together. I know someone, I met someone the other day and she was, she put out her hand to shake my hand and I thought, okay, <laughs> I can Go do for that. It, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, did, and it felt different. Actually, I could feel like her hand was felt better. It, the grip was strong and the, and the hand was warm. And there's something about that tactile experience. We need it. That's what we need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to your book writing. Your sixth book published in 2013 was titled mother daughter at me. The headline of the book review in the New York times was mother daughter, me, a feel good experiment. That wasn't piqued my curiosity. Share with our audience the story of Mother, Daughter, Me. And was it really a feel-good experiment that didn't feel so good after all? Well, you know, that's an odd headline, isn't it? A feel-good experiment that wasn't. Are they saying that the experiment wasn't or that it wasn't feel-good? So, actually, um, so I didn't grow up with my mother. Um, My sister and I were taken away from her when we were, I was 10 and my sister was 12. Um, we'd been living in San Diego and, but I, I had stayed close to her, um, and, um, just not raised by her. And so when she went through a tough time in 20, in 2009, she was going through a tough time. I brought her up to San Francisco to live with my daughter and me, my daughter and I were still kind of reeling from, um, my husband having died very young and um, he had died at age 45 and um, of a sudden heart attack. And my daughter was eight and we were, and we'd been through just a horrible time since then. And so we kind of had a no drama policy (laughs) and little did I know that bringing my mother to live with my daughter and me would sort of reignite kind of a bunch of, badness for me and then none of us behaved very well 
we all kind of acted out. My daughter didn't like not being the center of attention. My mother was going through this rough time. And and I didn't know my mother as well as I thought I did. And she didn't know me as well as she thought she did. And, And three generations living together is tough, no matter, you know, it has to be pretty perfect circumstances. So it kind of blew up. Um, And I wrote about it. I wrote about the whole year of trying to live together. But flashbacks to my really horrific childhood. I mean, it was a bad one. Um, So, uh, um, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, um, it was a mess. And, but my, you know, but we're all here and my daughter's about to get her MD and she's going to be, she's a superstar and, uh, and that's that. I mean, it's, you know, life, as you say, this whole question of resilience and my sister who was born less resilient than I was, and I do not know how that happened, how biology sorts itself that way, but I don't know if you have siblings and you would say your brother or your sister is able to pick up the pieces more easily than you are or vice versa. I'm the only child from divorced parents. So I'm another podcast episode to talk about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm now shying away from memoirs. (laughs) Not, I'm not about to write another one anytime soon. <laughs> so that being said, let's talk about your other podcast, Our Mothers Ourselves. Oh, yeah. So that is actually a lovely story. So um, when the pandemic first hit and we were all quite despairing um, and it felt like the world was coming to an end, I decided to do something uplifting and I'd always wanted to try my hand at podcasting. So I said to my husband, <laughs> I came home, I said, I'm going to do a podcast about great moms. And he said, Oh no, really? <laughs> okay. So I decided to do it on my 10th grade geometry teacher from Amherst, Massachusetts and Mrs. Fitzpatrick. And I found Mrs. Fitzpatrick's daughter interviewed Ellen Fitzpatrick had a, I had no idea, Chris, I had no idea what I was doing. I knew nothing about like, what microphone do I use? I knew nothing. I, and I thought, how hard could garage band be? I mean, how hard could it be? So I took me 30 minutes of audio took me probably seven full days of 18 hour days to put together, which should have taken, you know, 50 minutes. And I was like taking like little teeny tiny electronic scissors and like piecing it all together. And then I'd lose it. And then, and my husband heard me up here, like tapping away and he'd hear it. And then I finished it and I sent it to him. And I thought, and I, I felt like I was like a first grader going to, you know, their parent is saying, look what I made. And I hear him downstairs listening to this God awful thing. And he, uh, and of course I stole music and I held, I actually held my phone up hold, with the music to the microphone. I had no idea how to put the music. In. <laughs> it was a 
mess. So GarageBand isn't that simple. <laughs> well, now I'm like, it's no problem. But that was, it's a learning curve. And he was listening to it and I heard him down there and I'm thinking, uh-oh, crikey. He's hates it. And he just texted me from downstairs and he goes, wow. So, so uh, I know. So then I just started. I love it. I love that podcast. Um, it's it's I've been stepping back from it a tiny bit because of Lost Women of Science is so time consuming. But we celebrate extraordinary mothers. So, again, if you have an extraordinary mother, like I um, I featured Julie Andrews. Um, who was a great mom who had a terrible childhood. I don't know if you know much about her, mm. her life. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And I, I love golf, the game of golf. So I interviewed Amy Alcott, who was a great golfer back in the, back in the day about her mom. So um, yeah, very fun. We have just a few minutes left in a conversation that I've been completely fascinated by and had a lot of fun with. Where can people find more information about you, your books, your podcasts, and more? Oh, that's so nice. So katiehafner.com. Um, so my first name and my last name. Um, and then lostwomenofscience.org, of course. Uh, and so if you go to katiehafner.com, you can see you can see all my New York Times work, which is a lot of obituaries these days, um, sadly. And um, and then the Washington Post book reviews that I write. Uh, and that's all up there. I'm Unfortunately, I'm really easy to find. Uh, yeah. Katie Hafner has been our guest today. Katie, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was just great. It's been a lot of fun. And as always, thank you to our marvelous listeners and viewers for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.